get you squared away there. Okay, well let's talk about the book of Joel. And so if I wind up by the end of the night dropping my L's and calling him Joe, just know that that L on the end there is just kind of a, a hard letter to always catch in the conversation. But we're talking about Joel, even if I call him Joe before the night's over. Um, if you'll remember from last week, we are in the book of the Twelve. These are what are considered the Twelve Minor Prophets, not minor from significance, but minor in uh, the size of their books. Uh, and I told you that we would start seeing some shorter ones, and Joel has three chapters. So here's one of the shorter ones that we get to. Uh, the name of the book uh, is named after its author and its focal character, who is Joel, uh, the prophet. Uh, prophet being one who comes and delivers the Lord's words, the Lord's messages, both in the current context, but also uh, as we see with his book specifically in a future context. And his name means the Lord is God. And so it's another reminder as we see uh, this truth and we see this fleshed out in the lives of the Israelites that God is in control. He oversees uh, and, and takes care of all things in his time and according to his plans and his purposes. So the author uh, of Joel is the one and the same. Thank you for getting that door back there. Uh, there are two, two references. We see him in the book that he writes and in the book of Acts. At Pentecost, uh, it, uh, Peter quotes from the book of Joel. And so we have those two references. There are 12 other people in the Old Testament whose name is Joel, but it's not the same one. So when you read that, you, know, you may see one back in Kings or back in uh, uh, you know, Chronicles, something like that. It's not the same person in that. So those are the only two references that are citing this exact guy. We don't know his profession. We don't know exactly where he lived. It's thought because he references quite a bit Judah, which was the southern portion of Israel, the southern kingdom, uh, and really had a concern for what was taking place in Jerusalem. It's believed that he lived in the southern kingdom, possibly in Jerusalem or in the area surrounding. He was familiar with the temple, uh, things taking place there. So that clue kind of cues us in that that may have been where he lived. Now, the dating of his book, uh, it's very, uh, it's, it's really unknown. That There's no certainty as to the date, and so I'm going to walk you through a couple of things here as to a possibility, but you could argue just as well against all these things and be just as right. Uh, some people argue uh, you know, that it's in the, the uh, 7th century, it's either 835 to about 796 B.C. Others will posit dates as late as the 3 and 400s uh, for Joel, and we really don't know. There are no datable events. Uh, it was not uncommon for the prophets to speak of the king under whom they prophesied. You know, Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died. And so oftentimes the prophets will reference a king. Joel doesn't mention a king. There's no reference at all. So you're like, okay, did he just leave it out? Or part of the reason for dating it when it was is the fact that in 835, we know that Queen Athalia died. She was a queen uh, in Judah. She died. Uh, her husband had been killed, so she took over as, as queen. Her son Joash was too young to be king, so the priest, Jehoiada, ruled during the time from her death until Joash was old enough to become king. So scholars look at that and say, well, the reason he didn't name a king is because there wasn't a king in that window while Joash was getting old enough to be able to rule. So that's a possibility. Another kind of clue from silence is the fact 
fact that um, when you look at the book of Joel, he doesn't, or the, the countries that he mentions were earlier countries. So some of the references to those uh, kind of tie it there a little bit. Uh, but really, it's just nothing that, uh, that we have any certainty to. He borrows some language from some other prophets, and people will say, oh, well, he was in this time frame because they talked alike. Well, you all have been around people. And you've grown up in certain places in certain regions. What happens when you grow up with certain people in certain places? You talk like them, right? So you know, there, there's kind of the, the logic of that. But others say, well, some of the shared language is really around the temple worship. And it's around the liturgy, the things that they studied, the, the scriptures that they had. So that shared language really is something that could have gotten passed from generation to generation. Because we still quote Bible verses that, have, you know, the same Bible verses from 100 years ago. So, again, you're kind of back and forth uh, on that part. Of it, so the dating is very, very difficult for Joel. However, the good news is, doesn't really matter the date when Joel was written because the the truths are timeless. You know, the message that he delivers, whenever he delivered it, the fact that it's not necessarily we don't have the opportunity to apply it to a specific situation is an encouragement because when we, what we see is there is that it really does apply to a lot of different scenarios and a lot of situations. The purpose of Joel, uh, he uses a locust invasion to challenge the Israelites that the future day of the Lord would be great and terrible in the hopes that they would repent of their sins and return to God. So you're like, what in the world? So we'll, we'll, we'll pick that apart in a second. But that, that's the purpose of the book and how it was written. A couple of key verses. Uh, let's look at here. Joel chapter 1 verse 4. Again, the context of his book, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. That's pretty severe destruction. So, I mean, you kind of see the progression here of the different locusts that came through. They each had kind of a specific role and task. You know, one cut, uh, one swarmed, one then hopped in and ate what was left. And then there's the destroying locust that came in and finished everything else off. And so there's the context of this uh, locust attack that's taking place. Chapter 2, verse 12, says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So we've talked about in the prophetic message that oftentimes the prophets came and they delivered very hard messages about judgment and about punishment and about uh, you know discipline that's coming from God. But at the same time, there's always this message of hope that we see. And here he speaks of this, and we see the the sincerity here where he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. It was a, a symbol, a sign in that day and time when there was mourning, when there was grief, when you were sorrowful for something, you would tear your garments. There was this rending, this tearing as an act of grief and of sorrow. And so Joel says to his readers, look, don't just tear your garments. You know, don't, don't show your sorrow in your outward appearance of doing that. Rend your hearts. Be sorrowful, grieve in your hearts for the sin that you've committed. Because only when the heart is truly grieved will the heart truly repent, turn away from its sin, turn back to God where it can experience God's grace and his forgiveness and his restoration. Uh, On down a little further, chapter 2, verse 25. 
I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. That's an interesting verse that God says to them, when these locusts came through, they destroyed your your crops. I mean, they ate everything. And when we saw that, you know, chapter 1, verse 4, I mean, they just, it totally annihilated. Pretty much the description is every green thing in the land was destroyed because of these locusts. And remember that when locusts destroyed the green stuff that was growing, part of that was your food supply. So now you're in trouble. You have nothing to eat. But the other part of that was it was an economic staple. When you lived in a day and a time where you needed uh, grain and you needed your produce and you needed your fruit and you needed your vegetables to be able to barter, to go, hey, I've got this, you've got that, let's trade for it. When all of that's destroyed, the foundation of your economic system is just thrown into turmoil. And so, I mean, it's just a very, very destructive thing that happened with these locusts coming. But God's promise is that he would restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You know, that idea carries forward and we think through, you know, as we live a life of sin and we go through our disobedience and our seasons where we're not walking faithfully in obedience to God. And, you know, people, uh, sometimes individuals will get saved later in life and they lament and they grieve and say, oh, I wish I had had these years back. I wish I had been more faithful. I wish I had known. And you look at all this time that I lost and all this time that I squandered. But always, you know, look at this verse and be reminded that God can redeem the time that we have and God can accomplish in, in short windows of time great, great things. Yeah, maybe we, we did, you know, lose a decade or two decades here, but God's not worried about what we lost in that time, which is in the past, which we can do nothing about. But God is saying, I want to restore that now. I want to do greater things. I want to, you know, move and work now so that what you do experience is the abundance of what was missed in that window and God and his power and the way he works in our lives and the way he works through us, God can bring about these great seasons of blessings. You know, I've, I've seen so many parents walking through uh, years of ministry with them who uh, will say, you know, uh, particularly dads are, are very notorious for this. You know, I worked so much. I was about my job and providing for my family. And, and they come and it's in those teenage years when things get rocky. You know, kids begin getting way independent and then you have all that conflict that starts to come then and they're lamenting. Oh, I didn't do this then. I can't get this time back. And now it's here and it's just, you know, it's destroyed. What am I going to do? Because they want to have no relationship with me and they won't listen to anything I say and going through this. And I try to remind them of this verse that, hey, it's never too late to begin doing the right thing, which is the God thing, what God would have you to do and having and establishing a relationship with your child. And yeah, there may be some some hurdles, some obstacles from neglect in the past, but look at this promise of God saying, I can restore and I can do great things in this time, even though this season is gone. This is the season that you're in now, and trust me, let me work in this. And so I think all of us can you know, probably go through some similar things in our lives to say, hey, there were seasons of, a, of lack of productivity, of lack of fruitfulness for Christ and his kingdom, and let's not lament those things. Let's claim God's promise that I can restore, and I can do great things now and in the future uh, to outweigh what you squandered away or what we missed the opportunity to do in the past. So really, really good verse uh, to be reminded of there. Uh, the last one verses 28 and 29 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. 
Well, that's the reference that we find in the book of Acts at Pentecost. You remember Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit fell and people began to speak in tongues and they begin to speak and share the good news of Christ and to share the gospel. And so they cite Joel as the fulfillment, as that prophecy coming true of in that day I will pour out my spirit and people will begin to prophesy and they'll begin to speak truth and they'll begin to proclaim God's message and that's exactly what they did in the book of Acts chapter 2. Okay, so moving on here into some themes and theology stuff. We see the day of the Lord is a common theme. Uh, Joel mentions this, what is it, five references here. That is the most that the day of the Lord is mentioned in any book of the Bible. The next highest number you find it referenced in any book of the Bible is two. Two times will a prophet or someone speak of the day of the Lord. But five times in Joel's little book does he mention and bring up this term, this idea of the day of the Lord. And it's described as a day of judgment, of retribution, of God pouring out his wrath and his condemnation against sin. Uh, but it does doesn't stop with just the the negative, the, the discipline of that, also the day of the Lord. And when it says that, it's not referencing a single day as in a you know 24-hour window. It's a season. Uh, the day of the Lord can be from a day to a week to you know months or years. It just means the time of judgment, the time of reckoning before God when it is poured out. Uh, you see the bullet I think I left in there about the, the common descriptions of seismic disturbances. It talks about weather, clouds, and dark. Darkness, the upheaval. Uh, it's just a it's just a huge day where I mean you just absolutely know there's something traumatic, there's something grand that's taking place, uh, and it's a lot of times it does reference end times, like as the day of the Lord, the final judgment, uh, the final battle becomes, and God sets all things right and makes all things new. But not every reference is to that. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, for example, uh, it speaks of the day of the Lord, and that reference is to the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem in 587 BC when the Babylonians came they tore down the walls they destroyed the temple they finally carried all of the Israelites off into exile so that day that time of judgment is called the day of the Lord as well as the end times view that takes place uh, but when you see the, the formula and the things that go into the day of the Lord and this is the same thing we talked about that generally all the prophets deliver their messages along these lines that there's the judgment of God's people there's a judgment for foreign nations and then there's purification and there's restoration of God's people through the suffering that they endure. And so I gave you the, the breakdown from the book of Joel where he references those three parts that are in there. But again, remember that his book doesn't just end with the day of the Lord's coming and it's going to be bad, it's going to be awful. It's There's going to be good that comes out of this. God will bring restoration. God will heal uh, in this and he brings physical blessings, fruitfulness and prosperity returns to the people uh, as promised in this teaching. Uh, another thing you begin to look at a little bit in the book of Joel is uh, interpreting the Bible in view of whether it was ancient times and ancient fulfillment or if it was futuristic prophecy. So chapter 1, when you go back and you read through chapter 1 about the locusts who are invading, some individuals will argue that that is a metaphorical description of an overpowering army, of a group that's going to come in and destroy the nation, as in 
if this is written in 835 BC, remember that the Egyptians and then the Assyrians uh, and then the Babylonians and then the Persians and all these different groups down through history all the way up to the Roman time when Jesus comes. I mean, it just begins one world power after another. Anybody see today the discovery of the sunken city they found in the Mediterranean Sea here in the last couple days, couple weeks? I don't even know how long the window is. I see some heads on back there uh, researching, doing some archaeology. They found a, a city that's fallen, some, some huge statues, you know, 16-foot statues, some big um, uh, monolithic type things that describe the city that was taking place, and I couldn't even tell you the name of the city, but it just goes back and, and, and highlights and, and reminds us of the city that was there, some really good discoveries that came from the sea. They're, they're pulling all of that stuff up now, but about 1,200 years ago, but I remembered when I was reading the article, it talked about the, the Ptolemaic dynasty. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the prophecy from Daniel speaking about the kings who would come and the horns that would break off, and one of those following Alexander the Great was the Ptolemaic dynasty that came, so I saw that kind of tied into, but this domino of history that's taken place, people say that Joel chapter 1 is referencing that, that it wasn't really locusts that came through and ate everything as cutters and destroyers and all this kind of stuff, but that it's referencing a future army. So some argue that, but others say, no, it was really a plague of locusts that came through. It was a real-time life event, and God took that event that the people were in great sorrow, they were in great distress, what are we going to do? We don't have food, what are we going to do? Our economic stability is gone now, you know, we have no way of earning an income and a living. The people were in great distress and Joel, under God's inspiration, came to the people and said, you're worried about this. Well, let me tell you something. It's going to be a lot worse when the day of the Lord, when the day of judgment comes and his uh, denunciation of your sin and the punishment for this sin actually begins to transpire. So again, you get into this and you kind of look at it and say, okay, is it future uh, or is it you know, current to what is taking place in that? Always be mindful when you're looking at prophetic literature of that possibility. And if you're studying and getting into and you've got a good study Bible, hopefully it will help give you some context text on that and, and give you the options on it. But if not, you may want to spend a little time because it, I mean, it makes a big difference sometimes to realize that Daniel is referencing things that are going to happen between the time of, of his prophecies and Jesus coming or if Daniel's looking to the end times view of things. And so you, know, you want to be sure you've got the context of is it a, a current situation that's already happened as we know historically now or is it an end times promise that we're looking forward to and that we'll see experienced at that point. Number three uh, on the themes in theology, we see the seriousness of God's judgment on sin, including the sin of apathy. In a lot of the prophetic books, they specifically say, you've done this. This is what you've done, and you've, you followed this false god, or you have you know, sacrificed children, or you've done whatever. And they, they specifically rattle off a list. Joel doesn't do that. There's not this sense of you've done X, X, and X. There's, it's not specified, but some of the conversation around it, and when you look at different authors and, and what he's talking to here, is that probably a big part of the problem with Joel is that the people weren't concerned with anything much at all. The, the, the temple had kind of fallen in disrepair. They were going through the motions uh, in their worship, in their activities of stuff. And so what he's denouncing is their apathy. You know, how unconcerned they are with either pursuing God 
or with sin in their lives. They were in the state of spiritual numbness, if you will. And so Joel speaks to that to try and encourage them to pursue God with their heart. Remember the verse from chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, Rend your heart, not your garments. So that internal, that that it needs to be a sincere, you know, a hunger, a desire, a longing uh, to know God and to walk uh, in relationship with him. And so uh, even the sin of apathy uh, is a sin. Thinking ahead to the book of Revelation, you know, and uh, speaking to the seven churches, because you are neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. You know, Jesus says, I, I, I wish you were one or the other, but this lukewarmness, this apathetic state, I, I can't tolerate. I won't tolerate. And that's a word for vomiting, that Jesus vomits. You know, think, making him sick, that we are lukewarm, apathetic in our relationship with him. And so, uh, you know, to guard that against that in our lives. Number four, uh, themes in theology uh, is to think about evangelistic motivation. You know, as we seek opportunities and God calls us to share the good news of Christ. Well, why would we do that? Well, part of that is to think about when you read through Joel and his description and what he says about the day of judgment and you think about uh, the the horrors that are going to befall people uh, in judgment and separation and eternal uh, uh, separation from God, what that's going to be like. I mean, that should move you and motivate you to want to warn as many people as you can, you know, of what lies ahead and this fear of the day of judgment uh, and God's wrath being poured out again against sin. And so unless we're forgiven of our sins, that that is the eternity and that's the fate that awaits us. And so uh, being concerned about that should move us uh, to make sure that we and other people are ready as well. Number five on here uh, is just a reminder that God uses or God can use all things to draw us back to him. You know, it's interesting um, that Locusts are referred to, saw there in chapter 2, verse uh, 24, whatever it was a couple minutes ago we looked at, where he speaks of and he describes the locusts and, he, and God calls them my army. So he says basically, I've sent this army of insects. Bugs have come your way and destroyed your land to be an object lesson that I can use to warn you that there's a greater danger, and that greater danger is you not pursuing, not giving yourself in faith and obedience and complete trust to me. And so God used in this encounter locusts to be able to teach truths to his people. But God can use all manners of things. I mean, many of us know of individuals, and when we go through suffering, we go through hardships and difficulties, people become very uh, alert, uh, very sensitive to the ways of God in times of trouble, times of difficulty. God has used health situations, illnesses to cause people to be aware of him, uh, you know, tragedy in, in relational situations. I mean, just so many things. God can use all things to remind people and help them understand and know that he is alive. You know, this last weekend we showed the, the videos of the Gideons, you know, individuals and going to the hotel rooms and uh, their, their life in, in just disarray that God has his Bible there. He's brought people to put a Bible in a room and people, you know, come to that and their heart and their mind and their spirit is ready at that moment for that encounter with uh, the power of God and, and the Holy Spirit through his word. And so, you know, all situations God can use to draw us back to him uh, and to turn to him. So that's Joel. Pretty short to the point. Um, that's about it. Three chapters. Locusts. Warnings. 
but God's not going to leave me and abandon you. He's got good things coming at the end of that. So questions, comments on the book of Joel? What is your interpretation? Of chapter 1? No, you said the ancient versus well, I, I think chapter one is describing a, an actual locus event. When I, when I look through, I think it's it's you know got the tragedy that's there, but then I think he uses that to parallel it to what's going to come in the future. And I think the other prophecies are definitely futuristic events, not uh, historical things that have transpired. But I think it's it's far distant future of end times when God restores all things. I think those descriptions rise to that level. Good question. That's a new record. <laughs> we're, we're, 